Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you're giving us the chance to minister in a lot of different ways this week and to reach a lot of people with the word of God, not just in this room and not only in our conference, Father, but every time we speak and and teach, the recordings go out and you make sure that whoever you expect to hear it will hear it. And I thank you, Lord, for the blessing that it is to be used by you for that purpose. And Lord, I thank you that there are many who are helping us make that possible, that you didn't just uh, put a desire in our hearts and then leave us without the means to fulfill that desire. But you're bringing people, men and women to us, whose hearts are similarly inclined to your word and to reaching others with it. And I thank you for that blessing. May all that we plan to do tonight and in this weekend be done in your will and in your strength for your purposes, according to your will, so that it's not a work of men, but a work of the spirit. And tonight as well, as we open your word, Father, let the teaching be from you. The truth be according to your will. The words that are heard by those in this room and elsewhere be according to the Spirit's interpretation. And most of all, Father, give us hearts to do what we learn so that we wouldn't just be hearers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we did chapter 3, at least the first half of it, the story of Nicodemus. Do you guys enjoy that? This is the thing of John's gospel that's so enjoyable for me is the fact that he chose to highlight these interesting characters in these interesting moments. Last week, we saw the first of those with Nicodemus. If you happen to, to miss last week, let me encourage you. That was something I think you might enjoy. It's the story that is so famous because it included John 316. It's a part of that section of the chapter. And many Bible students are very familiar with it for that reason. And as we saw last week, there's an awful lot going on in that exchange between Christ and Nicodemus. You had on the one hand this man, a Pharisee, who was teaching that the way to the kingdom, the way to being born again in his mind, the way they understood that term, was through works. On the other hand, then you have Jesus looking at this man saying, no, that you cannot enter the kingdom by work of men. You can only get there by the work of God in the heart. And that exchange ended with Jesus stating that God must bring a man or woman out of spiritual darkness and into the light of the knowledge of Christ if they are to be saved. Those living in the darkness, Jesus said, don't enter the light voluntarily or will not enter it of their own volition because doing so just exposes the evil in their hearts. Paul echoes that truth, by the way, in 2 Corinthians Second Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case... The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And that led us to the question last week, of, well, then how can anyone be saved? Jesus answered that by saying that it is those who are walking in truth who are the ones who come into the light. In other words, God changes a heart so that that person will then be inclined to walk into the light of salvation. So their obedience can be said to be a work of God. Or wrought by God. That's the definition of grace. Grace is not an offer. Grace is the consummation of salvation. Thomas Constable sums this up in a very helpful way. Fallen men generally view human beings as morally neutral, if not good. And therefore, the fact that God sent Jesus and Jesus came to save sinners seems only interesting at best. If a man is good and not in need of salvation, well, he can applaud God's love as admirable. If a man is neutral, well, he can take salvation or leave it. And if he leaves it, well, then God appears unfair for condemning him. However, man is not good or neutral, but bad. He already stands condemned and destined to experience God's wrath. Therefore, faith in Christ becomes a necessary way of escape from that dreadful destiny. The incarnation is a manifestation of divine grace, not just divine love. 
And so with that, we end the story of Nicodemus. And as well known as that story is because of where it lies in John's gospel in its relationship to John 3.16, perhaps as familiar as it is, the second half of this chapter is, I think, decidedly less familiar to most Bible students. And we're going to pick up today in John 3, verse 22, in the second half, in this less familiar part of the chapter. This is a return to chronicling Jesus's movements. You remember he's in Jerusalem or was in Jerusalem for the Passover, and now he's moving back to his home in the Galilee. And so John focuses once again on the ministry of John the Baptist as Jesus again encounters John indirectly on his path to the Galilee. Let's pick up there. Verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing them. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there and people were coming and were being baptized for John had not yet been thrown into prison. We'll stop there for a minute. Jesus, it says, and his disciples moved north into the land of Judea. Now, the land of Judea references the region in what would be southern Israel today, and it encompasses the city of Jerusalem. Jesus has started there. He's moving north now. So he's going to move toward the Galilee, beginning in the Judean countryside north of Jerusalem. Eventually, he's going to leave Judea and go into another area called Samaria. And then as he passes through Samaria, he's going to move into the Galilee, which is at the northern end of present day Israel. The Samaritans who live in that area of Samaria are generally unfriendly to Jews who are passing through, particularly if they're coming out of Jerusalem. We'll look at that a little later tonight. But as Jesus moves out of Jerusalem, he's in Judea still and he's bringing disciples with him. Now, we don't know who's with him at this point, except for the names that were mentioned in chapter one. Maybe he picked up some new ones in the city where I'm not exactly sure. Haven't done the cross referencing on that with the other gospels just yet. One thing we do know, though, they're not the twelve yet. Uh, Some of them are in the group, but they're not called the twelve because Jesus doesn't select the twelve from among the rest of his disciples until after John the Baptist dies, according to the synoptic gospels. And as you can see, John's not dead yet. And so they come upon a place called Aon, which is along the Jordan River Valley, not on the river, but near there in the valley. That exact location, though, is not known. And therefore, it could be located anywhere west of the Jordan from the Galilee all the way down to the northern end of the Dead Sea. And that's a long valley there. Wherever it is, the name means springs. And as John describes, it's a place of abundant water. Obviously, Jesus has stopped here at this spring because in the wilderness of Judea, water is a precious resource. You're not going to often find an abundant source of water in the wilderness. And as the need to baptize has come along, they're looking for water. And here they go. By the way, this this fleeting reference to abundant water is another indication in Scripture that the only proper form of baptism is by immersion. If a Christian baptism could be accomplished merely by the sprinkling of water on a forehead, then Jesus wouldn't have needed to find a big spring of water in order to conduct his baptisms. They just could have taken a jar of water and done a sprinkling on the forehead and they'd have been fine. But John says specifically they stopped and conducted baptisms here because they found the amount of water that was needed to submerse an entire body. Going on, we've explained in the past why immersion is essential to the purpose and the message of water baptism. Time doesn't really permit me to get into that again tonight. However, briefly, I can say that water baptism serves as a picture of the grave and our immersion pictures our death, the death of our old self with Christ through our faith. And then coming up out of that water pictures our hope of resurrection 
which we have because of our faith in Christ. Only immersion can portray those pictures as Christ intended. Without having participated in immersion baptism, a Christian has not been baptized, no matter how many other ways water was applied to the surface of their body. Because it's about the picture that's being created, not about getting wet. Also, this is the only mention in the Gospels of Jesus's baptism ministry, that he was actually conducting a baptism ministry, as well as John the Baptist. Though later in chapter four, you're going to see John, the writer, clarifies that Jesus himself never baptized anyone. But it was rather his disciples who was actually officiating at the baptisms that he was doing. And that makes a lot of sense when you think about it. It would make sense that Jesus wouldn't participate personally in baptizing anyone. Just think about it for a minute. They're operating in a culture in which people sought associations with powerful people and they wore those associations like badges of honor in the culture. So it would have been a huge problem if you had early Christians running around claiming to have been baptized by Jesus personally, as if they were sitting at some higher level than the rest of the church. Paul says something similar about his own ministry, if you remember, in 1 Corinthians Chapter one, verses 12 through 14, Paul says to that church, he says, now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul and I am of Apollos and I am of Cephas and I of Christ. You notice they threw him in at the end. And then Paul says, has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Paul's point is that considering how. Believers in Corinth were willing to make too much of getting baptized by a certain apostle. Can you only imagine how much more they would have responded having been baptized by Jesus himself personally? There would have been a terribly unhealthy influence in the early church, especially among spiritually immature people. Right. So Jesus stays out of that process. And there may have been deeper spiritual reasons for it, but at least that reason is clear enough. Then in verse 23, we learn John the Baptist was also ministering in this area of Judea, John has evidently moved some distance north from where he was because his prior position, we were told earlier in this gospel, was in Jerusalem, near Jerusalem. That suggests something about what John's doing. John seems to be migrating north to keep his own ministry separate from whatever Jesus is doing nearby to avoid competing with him, to avoid bumping up too close. And to understand why, we have to go a little further. John says in his writing here that John the Baptist continued in his ministry of baptizing followers, though Jesus now has been revealed as the Messiah. And we learned in chapter one that John's purpose in baptizing was to be a forerunner to the Messiah so that once the Messiah arrived, then John would be the one to point him out to everyone who's been waiting for him. So now, naturally, we assume if Jesus has come on the scene and he's begun his earthly ministry, he's been baptized, he has the Holy Spirit, he's off and running well, then we would expect John the Baptist to just fade away. We don't need him anymore, or so we would think. John has done what he came to do. He's pointed out Jesus, and now he's taking everyone that had followed him, and he's directing them to go follow Christ instead. Follow him. He's the one I told you about. It's as if he's Jesus' downline, and he's just pushing people up to the Christ. And all the while, he's making this effort to avoid competing with Jesus' ministry. And he does this until he's murdered by Herod. So at this point... In the gospel, in verse 25, John's disciples engage in a conversation. And this conversation triggers a concern in their minds about why Jesus is perpetuating a similar ministry in what appears to be direct competition for what John the Baptist has been doing. Look at verse 25 and 26. Therefore, there arose a discussion 
on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. That's a curious concern, isn't it? Well, let's start with how this began. We have this unidentified Jew. He comes out to the springs where John the Baptist's disciples are, and he starts up a discussion. And the topic is a topic of Jewish theology, basically, of purification, it says. Now, we don't know exactly what they talked about, but given the topic, we can guess. Jewish teaching had a very well-developed system of ritual washings, and they came in various forms and for various purposes. For example, there were those ceremonial washings that were required or prescribed by God's law, particularly for the priesthood. So you had all of that stuff that they did on a routine basis. But even beyond that, the Jews had developed a whole bunch of additional purification requirements, things they had come up with on their own based on various schools of Jewish thinking and various rabbinical traditions. And so those were practiced in the culture. And then even beyond that, you would have these new rabbis, new leaders who would come on the scene from time to time, and then they would propose some new washing requirement, and sometimes that would catch hold and people would start doing those. And that was part of this never-ending expansion of Jewish ritual and custom and commentary all laid on top of the law. So as years and years go by, they just keep picking up more and more of this stuff. So this man comes out, whoever he is, and he probably comes to John's disciples with this question of where does John's ritual, John the Baptist's ritual, where does this ritual now fit within the larger context of Jewish teachings on purification, on washings? In other words, are you performing a washing required by the law? Or are you following a particular rabbinical tradition here, one that's already been prescribed? Which one are you a part of? Or are you establishing some new ritual? And by what authority are you doing these things? That's probably what the conversation sounded like. And then at some point, based on the reaction of the disciples, the question must have come up, how did John's baptism relate to the one that Jesus was now conducting just a little ways over the hill? And by the way, did you know he's got much bigger crowds than you do? John's disciples hear this, and particularly the part about the rapid growth of Jesus' ministry, and they come to John, and they tell him, notice, all the people are going to Jesus. All of them. He's baptizing all the people. The implication is what? Well, the implication is that John's baptizing ministry is diminishing because his competitor is taking all the business. That's exactly as John expected it. In fact, John has been encouraging people to go to the other guy. Follow him. He is the one of whom I testified, John said. And after all, that's the very purpose in John's ministry. But curiously, think about this. There are still men at John's side. These men are still his disciples. They have not heeded his own word to go follow Christ instead of him. They're still here. So they raise this concern. And by the nature of the question, or the statement really, it should be obvious that they're expecting him to share this concern over the competition. This is professional jealousy. Like a merchant who's upset that customers are flocking to a competitor's store across the street, watching with envy, right? That comment or this concern tells us a lot about the hearts of these men who have remained disciples of John the Baptist. They seem to be more interested in building an audience for themselves than they were in serving the purpose of John's ministry, that is, to glorify the Messiah. Notice they don't even refer to Christ as the Messiah. They refer to Jesus as the one John testified concerning. But they don't say that they accepted the testimony. They just labeled the guy that way. And they certainly gave no indication that they agree with it. 
What's more, the very fact that they continue to follow John after they've been told by John that they should have been following the other guy tells us all we need to know about their hearts. Wouldn't you agree? They have remained with John in the wilderness for reasons other than faith. This is a career move for these guys. They are approaching their discipleship under John in a way that's typical for the way rabbis and their disciples worked in this day. Rabbis in Israel were a cross between what we would think of as a pastor and a lawyer which is a terrible combination. <laughs> they, were, they were men who were respected because they had authority to teach, but they also had authority to adjudicate the law. So they could be the judge of someone who was in violation of law, even as they worked to teach those what the law said or some version of what they thought it said. And therefore, becoming a rabbi was an important stepping stone in a career to greater power in the Jewish culture, in their society. Today, the key to a good start in law or in politics, is to be admitted to the right university. And so it was in that day as well. But they didn't have universities in the way we think of it today. In their case, the university model was really a model of rabbi and disciples. And the key to becoming a successful rabbi and the key to becoming a successful disciple were often closely related. For example, the key to being a successful rabbi was to be sought after by as many disciples as you possibly could so that you could pick the best. And the key to becoming a rabbi yourself one day was to be the disciple of a particularly prominent and well-respected rabbi. It was just a cycle. So this is how it worked. An aspiring rabbi, a, a young man who was desiring that role one day and moved up into that line of work. When he was just starting out as a rabbi, he needed to make a name for himself. So he would recruit the best possible disciples in much the same way that a university would covet high school valedictorians today in their admitting class And likewise, uh, aspiring religious leaders, students who wanted to enter this profession, they sought after the most respected rabbis, just like straight A students try to get into Ivy League universities and the like. It's the same idea. And therefore, a disciple's credibility was based on the reputation of the rabbi, while the rabbi's reputation was based on the legacy of having excellent disciples. So Paul gives, by the way, evidence of the same thing in his own life. Remember when he talks about the fact that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees and he goes around and acts at different points, talking up his past in order to make a point about his current state in Christ. And at one point he reminds them that he was once a student of Gamaliel. And he mentions that because Gamaliel was the most honored Pharisee of Paul's day. So by association, Paul was saying he was a great student. So these disciples of John have come to John, not because they were seeking the Messiah, for if that were the case, they'd have already left. They've come to John because they saw John as an opportunity for them to enter into religious training under what seemed to be a promising and upcoming rabbi. Someone who's a little off, a little different, tries a different approach, but hey, it doesn't matter. He's getting attention. He's got a lot of people following him. If I can be his disciple, that looks good for me. And now that the reputation of their rabbi is at risk, they're asking themselves, what does this mean for our own career if his ministry goes down the toilet? So they're worried about his reputation only so far as it affects their own. No one wants to hitch their wagon to the losing train. And that's their concern at this point. That's the way the flesh thinks. And friends, that's a feeling or a thought that's typical for unbelievers. And not just in this day, under these circumstances. That's a perspective unbelievers have about religion generally. And it can also be the attitude of believers in some circumstances, you have to guard your heart against this kind of thinking, against becoming a disciple of, say, a denomination or a movement and doing so for selfish interests. You know, you aren't a, you are not a follower of a, of a certain congregation 
or of a certain pastor or a certain Bible teaching ministry or a certain Bible teacher. You're not called to advocate for the success of those things. You aren't saved to become cheerleaders for the first church of whatever or Pastor Bob or Brother Joe. I mean, our allegiance is not to those things. Our concerns are not for those things, at least not certainly more than our concern for Christ. And by extension, the success or the failure of one of those guys or one of those ministries has no reflection on you. None. In other words, you don't walk around and say, my church is big and successful, therefore I am. Nor can you say, well, my church failed miserably. Look at what a miserable Christian I am. I mean, neither of those makes any sense. Not unless you were personally responsible for tearing down a church, I guess. You could do that if you, if you worked at it, maybe. But Now, having said all that, there's nothing wrong with holding respect and admiration for our teachers or for our leaders or for our church congregations and communities, of course. But never let the earthly success of those things or your own success by affiliation become your motivation for that connection, for that contribution to those things. More importantly, don't develop a career mentality as you seek to serve the Lord. Once opportunity to serve in ministry has become nothing more than a stepping stone to another opportunity to serve in ministry, you're no longer serving anyone but yourself. And as far as we're concerned, the only thing the Lord has for us is to be receptive to the leading of the Spirit today and let tomorrow take care of itself. In fact, you might ask yourself if the success you've had in the past is the most you'll ever have according to God's will. Think of John the Baptist. His best days were behind him. When you think of it in earthly terms, when you consider what the world would see as they looked at his ministry. But he knew he had done all that he was called to do. If that man had, in his heart, decided that there was still more waiting for him and directed his work on on earth to achieve that, he'd have been doing it first in his own flesh and two, against the will of God, and three, to his own detriment, eternally. Careerism is a serious cancer in the church and it's hurting the flock. And it begins with men who put out resumes expecting to move up to the mega ministry of whatever in some future day rather than focusing on what God has given them today. I can imagine John putting out his baptism resume wanting 20,000 people baptisms in in Jerusalem instead of the five at the, the River Jordan. Anyway, in this case, I believe what you're seeing here is something even worse than what I just described, because you're not looking here at a group of believers. You're looking at a group of men who were unbelievers in the case of these disciples, and they're displaying envy. They didn't come to John in repentance. They came for personal ambition, and they received the baptism that he gave, and they were accepted as one of his disciples, and they saw that as a ticket to future employment. And so when John points out to them, okay, stop following me, time to follow the other guy, now they're bothered by that competition because it ruins their whole plan for who they came to follow and what they were going to get out of it. And you can see their hearts even more clearly when you look at what John says to them. Look at verses 27 through 30. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase. But I must decrease. What a humble response. And it's wise. And it's also convicting, by the way, to anyone who serves in ministry. First, he says, men receive nothing unless it's been given by heaven. And of of course, he's speaking firstly about the success you have in ministry. You know, you and I work in ministry, whatever that form of ministry is. We do so for the Lord's sake. And therefore, our results are determined solely by him. Solely. 
Hard work and diligence is the expectation he puts on us, yes, but nevertheless, the results are entirely in his will. So when you look upon another's work in ministry and you see it blossoming, perhaps more so than your own, and you wish you had that success in what you endeavored to do, whatever form that is, you need to consider first that that success is directed by God above. You may be getting exactly what God wanted for you while someone else is getting what God has for them. Remember, Paul says, God causes the growth. You may water, I may plant, but God causes the growth, according to 1 Corinthians. So therefore, there's, there's no place for jealousy in ministry. Jealousy among those working in ministry is tantamount to doubting God's judgment concerning these matters. We're suggesting God got it wrong, that when he chose to increase another's ministry over our own, that somehow he made a bad decision. That's what jealousy implies. But John's comment goes a lot deeper than just the idea that our ministry success comes from God. I think his point is universally true. God gives everyone everything according to his will. There are people who have more than you in any category of life that you want to name, and they have it because God gave it to them. And you have what you have because God gave you what you have. And to concern yourself with what you have versus what someone else has is a starting point down a very bad road. If we lack... It's by decree. If we seek past what God has provided, we have become distracted. If we obtain that thing we're distracted by, then we've, well, we've put ourselves in a position to be owned by it. You have to guard against that mindset. And Paul says the mindset we're to have in place of that is contentment. What contentment means is what I have is what I want. Then he begins to explain to him, to the disciples, the proper perspective on what's happening. First, in verse 28, he says, I've always told you I'm not the Christ. He's never been ambiguous about his mission. He's sent by God ahead of Christ. That's his job. And so it only makes sense that when God finally produced the Messiah, that his mission being fulfilled is going to fade. It's it's no surprise. And he uses a parable, very familiar one, one to explain his relationship with Christ. He uses the wedding ceremony, which we've heard probably in other places in the Gospels. The bridegroom, the bride, you know, in a wedding, those two people are the focus, are they not? the bridegroom and the bride, it's all about them. And so naturally, you have others there, but no one in that room expects to get the prize. No one in that room expects to get all the attention. Even the man who's the closest to the groom, that is the groom's attendant, when he says the bridegroom's friend, the word friend in Greek is attendant, we would say best man. It's that one that's right there to the right, right to the side of the groom. He's the friend. He's privileged to share in the joy of the friend that he has and to share in the joy of the groom. He's privileged to watch the uniting of the groom and the bride. He's satisfied in that role. He's done what he's come to do. He's assigned a part and he played the part. But would a true friend in that setting feel jealousy for the bride? Would he start hitting on the bride when the groom wasn't looking? Would he try to... I I know that's probably happened, but... Is that what a friend does? Is that what you'd expect? And these disciples are basically, in a metaphoric way, they're asking John to do that very thing. Jesus, obviously, we know is the groom, and the believers who come to him, the Bible says, are his bride, the bride of Christ. That bride today are all those who come into the church since Pentecost. At the time John spoke what he spoke here to the disciples, Paul had not yet revealed the mystery of the church. And so it's likely that John's just referring to Israel as the bride, the people of the Jewish nation who were coming out to see Jesus at this time. That's still to the point, though, of what's being said here. The point is that there is the groom and he's not it. And that there is to be a handoff here. And he says, look, my joy is complete in just knowing that I fulfilled the mission Christ gave me. That's it. I don't need any more than that. I don't need the praise of men. I don't need careerism. I don't need to climb some ladder. I don't need the world patting me on the back. I know my Lord is pleased with me. What more do I want? Can we say that? (laughs) 
I mean, I guess John had a clear indication of the Lord's pleasure in the fact that he saw the fulfillment of his mission in such a tangible way. So that explains how he could be so sure. But I don't think we necessarily have any less reason to think God can make clear to us our purpose and make clear to us that we've fulfilled the purpose or to make clear to us that he's pleased. I don't think he's any less capable of showing us those things. That's not the point. That's not the problem. The problem is, can we be content once we know we've pleased him? Even if that means at a lower station in our career than we might have hoped for, in a smaller place, in a smaller church. We assume that if we're pleasing God, we'll have a big audience. And yet the Bible says the opposite. Woe to you when men say good things about you. The way you have to change the message to attract a crowd, it's going to be woe to you because it's not going to be pleasing the Lord anymore. And he says, rejoice, on the other hand, when they persecute you. So I'm not saying that small is always good and big is always bad. I'm saying that the trend is always that way, though. Jesus' fame and his power and his authority will grow, but by that same token, John's role must decrease. His job and the end of it all was to precede the Messiah, not compliment him and certainly not compete with him, just to precede him. The fact that John's disciples heard this all from John at some point in the past and yet they stayed with him anyway tells us they did not have faith in the Messiah. And John knew that. I mean, his own statements to these men seem to know that. In fact, look what John says next at the end of this chapter. John preaches the very same gospel to them that you heard Jesus preaching earlier in this chapter to Nicodemus. And look how similar the words are. Verses 31 through 36. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of that he testifies and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John says the one who comes from above is above all. And it's a very simple concept, right? John is preaching that Jesus's origins were heavenly. He's born of a woman, yeah, but he had no earthly father. He's God coming down to earth. And when he describes the birth of Christ as the birth from above, he's saying exactly the same thing that Jesus said when he spoke about being born again. Take the words born from above and the words born again, and they're synonyms here. They're synonymous. They both refer to spiritual birth made possible by God, who's the one who does that work. So Jesus is the one born from above. We are born again from above, from God, in the same sense. And then John goes on to say, because he came from heaven, he has words describing what's there. He knows the things of heaven in only a way he could, because no one else has been there, to come back with that kind of insight. Only Christ can bring that kind of revelation. He says, those who are from the earth can only tell you about what you can find out on earth. John being, obviously, from the earth in that sense. So what did John tell us? John told us the same things the Old Testament told us. John said there would be one who would come. John said that there was one sent ahead of him to make straight paths in the wilderness before the one who is said to come. These are the same things you could have read already in Isaiah. All he did was repeat what we already had. The difference is he fulfilled it versus Jesus who comes with new knowledge. Finally, John repeats Jesus's words saying that even though Jesus came testifying of heaven, no one received his testimony. Once again, we ask the question, why do some receive the testimony of Christ when we're told, both by Jesus and now again by John, that no one receives it? In verse 33, John says, the one who receives Jesus' testimony has sealed 
or you could say guaranteed, that God the Father is true. Now, what he's saying is this. The one who receives the Son is giving evidence by that receiving of the truth that the Father has given him that truth, that he has made it known to him. So that the one who accepts the Son is himself showing evidence that he is accepted by the Father. The Father has accepted him in the sense that the Father has revealed to him who his Son is, so that when the Son comes, he knows it and he receives that in faith. So the answer is so obvious, it would be ridiculous for the disciples of of John here to even hesitate in abandoning John and going after Jesus, right? And yet here they are. Here they are with John, complaining because Jesus is stealing all the sheep in this baptism ministry. It's no wonder that John preached the gospel to these guys and did so as unbelievers. And as he finishes again with the words that sound so similar to the ones we saw in John 3:16 through 3:18, he says, "The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. The one who does not believe, that is, does not obey Christ, will not have that eternal life, and the wrath of God abides, or you could say remains, on that person." So, friends, for anyone who has not received the gospel, they are essentially walking around carrying the wrath of God. They haven't seen that wrath poured out as yet, but they are storing it up for that day of judgment. That's John's point to his disciples. They may perceive themselves as having found what they're looking for, but John wants to open their eyes to the jeopardy that they are in. They are literally a heartbeat away from seeing the wrath of God poured out, as as is any unbeliever in our midst. So that's why they need to become disciples of Christ. Leon Morris sums it up this way. He says, the wrath of God is a concept that is uncongenial to many modern students, And various devices are adopted to soften the expression or to explain it away. But this cannot be done without doing great violence to many passages of Scripture and without detracting from God's moral character. We should not expect God's wrath to fade away with the passage of time. Anyone who continues in unbelief and disobedience can look for nothing other than the persisting wrath of God. This is basic to our understanding of the gospel. Unless we are saved from real peril, then there is no meaning in salvation. With that, John the Baptist fades from John's gospel. There's only a few moments later in the gospel that he's mentioned, and then only in past reference by Christ, speaking of what John has done in the past. From this point forward in John's record, we don't hear of John the Baptist's ministry anymore. And of course, as we said earlier, John doesn't cover the death of John the Baptist because the other writers have done it already in the synoptics. So, Instead, what John does is he continues north with Jesus. So we said Jesus has left Jerusalem, he moved into Judea, and now he's got to move into Samaria on his way back to the Galilee. And this opens the door to chapter 4 and to the appearance of the next of our characters in our little vignettes, as I've described them, these moments along the way in John's gospel in which we highlight these individual characters and something about their interaction with Christ teaches us something about salvation and a life lived in faith. So we enter into another of those conversations, this time between Jesus and I guess you'd say a woman of questionable character, the Samaritan woman. And it's this encounter and the aftermath of it that will require all of chapter four. And I would certainly prefer to do all of chapter four as a single sitting because of that. But of course, time doesn't let us do that. So we're going to split it up tonight. We're just going to look at the opening of this encounter. So verses one through four. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. He left Judea and went away into the Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. 
I will pause again there for a moment. There's some background that I think you'll find helpful. This chapter uh, picks up at the end of the events of chapter 3, as you can see, with Jesus still in Judea. And now he's preparing to go to the Galilee. He's leaving, we're told, because Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing even more than John the Baptist. And as we said earlier, it wasn't actually Jesus doing it. But anyway, the Pharisees are increasingly worried about Christ. They're worried about his popularity. They're worried about the the crowds and the, the adoring emotional response. And they think he's going to become a danger to their power. So Jesus, knowing this, decides it's better to pick up stakes and move the tents north and head out for the Galilee. At the point that he leaves here, he's somewhere near Aon, as I said, probably near Jericho. And he's got to travel from there. If you look on a compass, he's got to go north, northwest from there if he's going to get to Capernaum, which is his home place in the Galilee. That takes him smack dab through the middle of a place called Samaria. No doubt most of you have heard the term Samaritan, probably from Luke chapter 10 and with the prefix good in front of it, right? The good Samaritan from Luke 10, where that parable uh, is told. The real power of that parable and actually of this story in chapter 4 of John's gospel comes from having an understanding of the historical relationship between Jews and Samaritans. So let's do a little background on Samaritans first. Samaritans take their name from the region, as you can tell, from Samaria. They trace their origins back to the time of the Babylonian captivity when Israel was taken by Nebuchadnezzar. When Nebuchadnezzar came into the southern nation of Judah, he took captive most of the Jews from Judah. In 597 B.C., he forced them to leave in chains. As you may remember, about 120 years earlier, the northern kingdom had been taken captive in an earlier siege by Assyria. And the Assyrians had taken all of the northern kingdom away and never brought them back. Well, when that happened, when the northern kingdoms were taken away, there were a few ragtag refugees who managed to escape the Assyrians. They were out in the field. They ran at night, whatever they did to get away. And they stayed in that area of northern Israel, what was at the time considered the northern kingdom of Israel. They remained hidden from the Assyrians, but they also remained separate from the Jews in the south. You might think, well, at that point, they would run south to protect themselves and join the rest of the Jewish people who were still in Judah at the time. But no, because northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah were enemies. So they didn't want to go to their other enemy. So they just stayed in the land by themselves in this region called Samaria. And while they are there, they begin to intermarry with the Gentiles from that area of the land in Samaria. By intermarrying with these Gentiles, these refugee Jews from the northern kingdom polluted their bloodlines and they therefore forfeited Their Jewishness, they became Gentile as they married into Gentile families. They were no longer Jewish. And also, over time, they began to abandon many of the Orthodox Jewish traditions that were common in Judaism. And yet, ironically, they continued to see themselves as Jewish. They thought they were Jewish. Then, 70 years later, after the Babylonian captivity and after Nebuchadnezzar, 70 years later, you may know, that's the time when the Israelites who were in Babylon are released by Persia, by Cyrus, and allowed to come back and to restart building their temple under Zerubbabel. So 70 years later, you have the southern Jews returning to their land. Well, the Samaritans now, who've been in that region now for 190 years, their descendants hear that the Jews from Judah are being released and they're returning. So what do they do? Well, they travel down to Jerusalem expecting to rejoin them and participate in the rebuilding of the temple as Jews. And then when they show up, Ezra records what happens in that moment. In Ezra chapter 4, Verse 1, now when the enemies, notice how he describes them, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard 
that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's households and said to them, let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Ershad and king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the heads of the father's households of Israel said to them, you have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus the king of Persia has commanded us. So in short, the Jews told the Samaritans to get lost. And of course, the Samaritans took it very personally. And that began a centuries-long feud between the Jews in Judea and the Samaritans who lived directly north of them in this region that is part of Israel today. And this is what happened. After that moment, the Samaritans responded by separating themselves from Jews and challenging them for the claim of who was the true Jew. They built their own temple on a place called Mount Gerizim in Samaria, they called it the real temple. They took the five books of Moses, the law, and they deleted any reference to other place names. For example, they replaced Mount Moriah with Mount Gerizim. They just changed all the words so that it looked like it was all about them in the first place. They eliminated all the other books of the Old Testament because they all talked about prophets sent to the other places and they didn't like that. They created their own priesthood. They developed their own theology. They mimicked everything that had been done for Israel under the law through Moses and made a version of it that was appropriate for them in Samaria. And then they called themselves Jew and thumbed their nose at the Jews down in Jerusalem. You could draw parallels from what they're doing here to other movements of our day like Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or these other man-made religions that attempt to supplant the truth of Christianity by counterfeiting the broad outlines of what Christians believe, but not the finer details and certainly not the heart of it at the gospel. And they lack the truth because they don't have the heart that's been changed by the spirit in the first place. Remember, the truth of God is granted, as we've already learned, by God from above. It's not found by men through their own efforts. So when men lack the knowledge of the true God, all that they have left is to create their own distorted version of it to suit themselves. And that's what the Samaritans had done. Now, this rivalry over the centuries, it produced a fierce hatred between Jews and Samaritans. I mean, if you think Cowboys fans and Redskins fans don't get along, you have nothing on these two groups. Jews saw Samaritans as only slightly better than a Gentile. And the only reason that they put Samaritans one rung higher on their social ladder was just owing to their heritage and the fact that they were willing to adhere to the dietary laws out of the law. So there was at least some affinity there, but we're talking about a very small difference. For their part, the Samaritans hated Gentiles as well, but they actually reserved their greatest hatred for Jews because they were so jealous. They typically would refuse comfort to Jews who were traveling through Samaria on their way to or from Jerusalem. They wouldn't let them stay in any of the homes there. They wouldn't let them stay in hotels. They asked them, where did you come from and where you're going before they would decide whether to rent a room to them? And you can see this reflected at one point in the Gospels in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. This is another point in which Jesus and the disciples are passing through Samaria. It says, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers on ahead of him. They went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. The arrangements they're talking about here are to get a room for the night. So he sent people on ahead to reserve a room at the hotel. You know, there's no texting, no phone calls. You've got to walk. So they go ahead to make the reservation. <laughs> then these messengers come back to Jesus with this news. It says, verse 53, they did not receive him, meaning they weren't going to let him have a room, because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. And my favorite line, verse 54, when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? 
You can clearly see the rivalry here between Jews and Samaritans, right? And it's reflected in the disciples' ridiculous comments. They're practically begging Jesus for the opportunity to wipe Samaritans off the face of the map, aren't they? I really want to get into their heads, though. Where did they get this power to call fire down from heaven all of a sudden? And I would have given pretty much anything I have to see Jesus' expression right after they said those words. It was something like this. That's the way I see it. I don't know about you. So clearly, there's, there's no love lost between these two groups. Because of their hatred, there was some risk to a Jew like Christ choosing to pass directly through Samaria as he's choosing to do today. In fact, it would have been much more likely, more customary, for a Jew traveling from Jerusalem back to the Galilee to walk all the way around Samaria. There was a road that let them bypass Samaria and move around it, and that would have been more customary. But Jesus says, no, we're going to go straight into Samaria. Now, what's so interesting about Samaritan culture, knowing the background now, What's so interesting to me about their culture, and it's very important to get this if you're going to understand the interaction between Jesus and this woman, is that they were certain that they were the ones with the truth while the Jews were the ones who were deceived. But the facts tell an opposite story. The scriptures spoke of Jerusalem, not Mount Gerizim, not Samaria. And the history of how they came to be where they are and into the existence that they know, that's not in dispute. And no one in that day would have argued the history wasn't what it was. And yet, nevertheless, they're sure that Samaritans are the true Jews, while the Jewish people in Jerusalem were the wrong ones. You're going to see that reflected in the conversation that ensues between these two people, between Jesus and the woman. They had these deeply held convictions and these cherished traditions, and they were completely wrong. Can you be absolutely certain about something and still be completely wrong? (laughs) All the time. Especially when you make up your own version of the truth. You know Barna, Barna Research? famous for doing statistical surveys, analysis on Christians. They did a survey on what Americans believe, and they asked this question, is there absolute truth? And amazingly, 66% of American adults responded that they believe there is no such thing as absolute truth. Different people can define truth in conflicting ways and still be both correct. That's what they're saying. That figure goes up to 72%, though, when you talk about people between the ages of 18 and 25. Can you believe that? People actually think you can have contradictory views and both be right. But we come to understand the difference between truth and error and right and wrong as God reveals truth to us because truth never changes, despite what people think. Truth never changes. It cannot bend to fit the desires of an evil heart, right? It is what it is. If you change the truth to fit your desires, it's by definition no longer the truth. You know the old saying, right? 99% true is what? 100% lie. So if the Samaritans in Jesus' day had wanted to know the truth, let's say they had a heart to desire to know the truth, they could have found it. It's not like it was hard. They could have researched the history of their traditions. They could have researched how they came to be who they are. They could have read Jewish scripture, compared it to their own. I mean, they could have found it. It wasn't impossible. The thing is, they weren't interested. They weren't interested in doing something like that because just as people we find today, they were more interested in being right than in knowing the truth. And they were content, therefore, with their own counterfeit version of the truth. Paul says that's the state of every person's heart before God brings them the truth by the Spirit. And John has shown us in the previous chapter that men are self-deceived from birth, thinking they have something that's true, though the truth stares them in the face, right? That's because our dead hearts are always inventing some new way to find God. And the Samaritans had contrived this huge religious model, this system, by which they were supposedly pleasing God, and it was a house of lies. But ironically, so had the Pharisees done exactly the same thing in Israel. 
That's the interesting thing between these two chapters. You have a Pharisee who is representing the true Jewish people with their own house of lies, just as far from God. And now you have this Samaritan woman. All men prefer to believe what suits them as opposed to the truth until God shows it to them. Now, with that background, we have one more section we do today. Look at verses five through nine. So it says he came to a city of Samaria called Sakar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. That little parenthetical statement at the end, that's that's John's covering of the history that I just covered in one sentence. (laughs) When Jesus reaches the car, we're told he's just outside of the place of Shechem. And uh, as John's gospel says, he's near the land that Jacob gave his son, Joseph. You can go read about that in Genesis 48. I want you to stand there with me at this well and you look up and at the horizon, you're going to see a mountain. You're going to see this rise, not a high mountain, but you're going to see this rise. You're staring at Mount Gerizim. You're within sight of the place that they, the Samaritans, call their Mount Moriah, their Jerusalem, their Temple Mount. So you're well within that place. It's right there. And it's at this point that Jesus stops to rest. The well he stops at is called Jacob's Well. And it's because the Samaritans had concocted this folklore concerning the location. Now, the region that he's in, this space, was what was given to Joseph. But no one knows exactly which well within this space was one that God may have given to Jacob. In fact, no one knows that that original well is even still there. But the Samaritans had said, this land is once the land that Jacob possessed, and this well, therefore, must have been one of his wells. And so there you have it. This is Jacob's well. No evidence actually existed to make that true, of course. But as long as you say something long enough, sooner or later, it's true, right? And that's how a culture of unbelief decides what is true. Once again, things really haven't changed very much. Do you know that? People really love relics. People love places that have fame to them, right? For example, did you know that today a number of those places you can visit in Jerusalem or in the area of of Israel that are designated as those important New Testament historical moments, that most of those places are completely wrong? That they have no relationship to truth. Oh, this is the place Jesus fell. Oh, this is the place where they did this. Or this is the place where they did Nobody has any idea. There's no evidence, by and large, to support any of that. Most of those places were decided by Constantine's mother when she rode into town in about the 4th century and just started telling people, well, that's where this is and that's where this is. And they labeled it. They set up a church. They started taking money. And there you go. It's now a relic. In several cases, the places that are designated as these important New Testament historical places couldn't possibly be accurate because the geographical details don't align with Scripture. They're not even in the right place. And that doesn't bother the hordes of tourists who pay to go see those things, do they? The buses still pull up there every day. Now, you and I might sit here and say, well, Steve, is that Disneyland theme park religious experience really that bad? I mean, it's just letting people have some fun in the Holy Land and get a little closer to God and so on. Does it really matter if some of those sites are wrongly identified? I guess the answer would be it depends. If you're asking, does it matter if we know the precise location? No. Obviously, it doesn't really matter. But if you're asking me, does it matter that we hold these places in high regard and that we allow these physical relics to take on some spiritual significance? Well, then, yeah, the the answer is emphatically yes. That's a big problem. And it matters very much if these things have become in our hearts a kind of idol. 
If our concern for these physical things supersede or substitute for our faith in God's word or for true worship in the spirit, then, yeah, we're in the wrong place by definition, because God can't be contained in buildings built by human hands. Right. He's not localized in that sense. And if you choose to live a religion that focuses on those things, you've moved into man-made religion. You're no longer worshiping in spirit and in truth. You've counterfeited true worship. Consider what it means that God never allowed Moses' body to ever be found by the Israelites. No one ever knew the location of where he was buried. God went to such efforts to make sure no one could know. God buried him himself, we're told, in Exodus. Obviously, he didn't want Israel to know where Moses was because you know what would have happened, right? If they could have found Moses' body or his grave, you would have had an instant idol, instant relic. And God knew that. Now, the Samaritans were guilty of doing that exact same thing. They were not true followers of God. They followed a counterfeit faith. And when you depart from the word of God as they did, well, what do you have left? All you have left is relics. All you have left is buildings and history and folklore. You just have that empty shell of human ritual instead of worshiping God. You're worshiping the creation or you're worshiping the ideal of what you think of God rather than actually worshiping him. You worship according to the precepts of men and then you convince yourself that you're the custodian of God's truth. Because you own those relics. Why do you think people fight so much in the Middle East right now over who owns what piece of land, right? Because those relics are the tangible proof of their connection to a God they don't know. And you can feel really comfortable with a counterfeit worship. You can feel really good with relics until, until the truth comes along. And on this day, this woman encountered the truth, which is what we'll study when we come back. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that you have given us by your power and sovereignty the knowledge of yourself, that we might worship in spirit and in truth, that we wouldn't be shackled to relics, dead idols that only evoke memories of what we don't have, as opposed to the knowledge we have of you in your word, which is ever living and present in our hearts. I thank you, Lord, for that truth and that revelation to each one who's come here tonight to hear this and others who hear later. I ask, Father, that you'd never let us take that step backward such that we bow before an object or that we say prayers because we're in a certain place or that we feel you because we've come into a certain building. Those things, Father, are signs of spiritual immaturity, not maturity. And we know that. We ask, Lord, that you protect our hearts from that, keeping us away, Father, from the schemes of the enemy and always hearing from you in truth. Father, we pray for that. And we ask this study would continue so that we might learn more of what your son showed in these important moments in John's gospel. Help us also sharing what we learn with others, Father. We'd love to bring others into the light as well. According to your will, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.